welcome once again to Father Spitz's universe at the busy intersection where faith and reason sometimes collide, many times meet, and they get along quite well. I'm Doug Keck, your gatekeeper here, coming to you from the mothership where it all began. 1981, thanks to Mother Angelica, keeps going strong. Thanks to you. Email your questions to us at spitzersuniverse at ew10.com. And as always, check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, magiscenter.com, purposefuluniverse.com, and spitzercenter.org. They're all different, all unique. Check them out. You know, Father Spitzer's Universe is also unique and also available on our EW10 YouTube channel and on our on-demand page always. And while you're checking out our on-demand page with over 3,000 titles, the Holy Winding Sheet, Father would like this one, Exploring the Shroud of Turin, one of his favorite topics. In this documentary, five of the Shroud of Turin's leading experts provide a contemporary look at the history and authenticity of the linen believed to be the burial cloth of Christ. See it now for free and on demand 24-7 anytime you'd like to see it. And you can watch it again, of course. And our topic for today is based on Father's book, Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church naturally available through our religious catalog. Pick up a copy and so you can read along as we go through the book on the program. And a very nice book, Book of the Month for August from EWTN Publishing by a former employee of ours, great friend Kate Sidner. And the book is Good Night Jesus. If you love Good Night Moon, this is wonderful for grandparents and parents to get, especially as we head towards Christmas this fall. And with that, we turn to Mr. Universe himself, Father Spitzer, great to see you as always. <laughs> Thanks, Dad, Doug. <laughs> I'll begin with a prayer here. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us. The blessing especially of this program and ministry, our ability to serve in it. We ask you now to send your Holy Spirit down upon our whole audience, Doug, myself, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray Amen. for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Very good. Thank you, Father. It always uh, gets us off to a great start here at, on a, any program on EW10 as a prayer. Here's, a, here's an interesting article. Uh, this one uh, came out of ASI Digital, which is our Spanish uh, CNA service. Uh, uh -huh. And this is a story uh, that I guess ultimately came out of Brazil. Former liberation theologian says movement-fueled decline of Catholicism in Brazil. So this is a bit of a long article. The long dominance of liberation theology is at the root of the decline of Catholicism in Brazil, according to Friar Cordovis Boff. Notice his last name, Boff. He's the mm -hmm. brother mm -hmm. of, uh, of yep. the Boff who really was behind it, uh, and the famous brother yep. of Leonardo, mm -hmm. right, who was the Catholic priest and one mm -hmm. of the founders mm -hmm. of the movement back in the 70s. Uh, he mm -hmm. said, then in a move that alienated him from his famous brother, Clodovis, Bob Boff published the article Liberation Theology and Return to Fundamentals, in which he accused liberation theologians of making the poor the center of theology instead of Jesus Christ. And he says, the crisis in the church and liberation theology, these are important questions about what we're focusing on. He said, we need to drink in Christ, who is the source. Everything dries up and dies off otherwise. Absolutely. We, you see that all the time, right? 
He said in the late 60s mm -hmm. in this article, when liberation theology began its long dominion of religious thought in Brazil, more than 90% of Brazilians were Catholic, now 51%. And on top of that, moreover, Brazilian Catholics have a very low rate of church attendance. 8% go to Sunday Mass. Uh, so mm -hmm. your thoughts on the beginning, there's some additional stuff, but go ahead. Yeah, no, I think there, first of all, as you know, um, this is a very, liberation theology was a very Marxist uh, enterprise from the very start of it. And uh, there was always an internal tension as to whether um, typically the Old Testament theology, sometimes more than Christian theology, the Exodus theology, etc., whether the Bible was more important than Marxism or Marxism more important than the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously, I think uh, the author's viewpoint here is that uh, maybe Marxism predominated mm -hmm. uh, certainly in, um, well, certainly in the late 60s and the early 70s, uh, no question. Um, the Marxism was the dominant model that was being used. It was a sociological model. Um, uh, the theological links to it became weakened, uh, you know, when the um, Max Weber kinds of analysis and the sociological analysis and finally the Marxist mm -hmm. analysis became so uh, predominant. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, Christianity was almost a, a pale shadow by comparison. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, obviously Jesus had the poor in mind and was very, um, you know, right. desirous of, of enhancing the well-being of the poor. Um, but I think the real um, uh, emphasis that he is correct in saying is they lost contact um, with Jesus mm -hmm. and they lost contact with God. I would say that it wasn't so much the poor. Mm -hmm. I'd say it was the Marxist model, right. almost the seduction mm -hmm. of thinking that you could solve the problems of the world with a, um, a, a sort of a, a, an uh, impositional economic model, a, a state-controlled model, um, which is, of course, the most naive economic position you could possibly have, because when you have a, a state-controlled model, it focuses all of its uh, resources on distribution, mm -hmm. but not on production. And, of course, production uh, is what makes an economy. That's what creates the wealth of nations. You have to have a market system in place that allows free enterprise mm -hmm. to create these things, to have entrepreneurs taking these risks, to having our most creative individuals building these enterprises with at great expense to themselves. These are the things that are going to produce the wealth that can then be distributed. But you turn everything up on its head when you start looking at distribution first without production. Distribution of what? Mm -hmm. If the economy produces nothing, there's nothing to distribute. And so this became, though, a seductive, seductive model. And you can see how, you know, the... Um, you know, the uh, political ramification of coming on board and saying we're going to give you everything you always deserve, like Robert Mugabe out there, mm -hmm. we're going to just take away all of these farms from these terrible people and we're going to, uh, you know, turn them all over to the people. Now, you do have to have some expertise in farming, mm -hmm. some expertise in farm equipment, some expertise in, uh, you know, business matters and business plans and things of this nature in, in order to make these things happen. Well, you know, as we, as we know, in 10 years, he reduced one of the most uh, productive economies in the world. Uh, he reduced it, reduced it to a nothing economy. And you say, well, now the people own property. But, you know, to own 
you know, a 100% share in zero, mm -hmm. in other words, a non-productive landmass, is, of course, a disaster area. And something, so tell, something tells been, me he got quite wealthy along the way. Uh. Uh, yes, he did, as a matter of fact. One of the most <laughs> wealthy people do. in the world. They always do. <laughs> they always do. But right. <laughs> And right. uh, I would mention that most Marxist despots do the same Seem thing. How, to manage how in the world they can have these... Yeah, exactly. Right. The it's Swiss amazing. bank accounts and right. the offshore it's bank accounts. Absolutely. <laughs> and the, the little Caribbean island, you know. <laughs> anyway, That's right. I, yeah. I rest my and case. For the it, it, but I think it was, yeah, it was a, right. it was really a model, though, more than, right. uh, uh, you know, I think the, sed the seduction of the of the great Marxist myth and the Marxist right. model um, that really did it. And of course, it, you know, Jesus looked like, uh, you know, he didn't know anything about economics. Well, as it turned out, the Marxists didn't know anything about right. economics. And, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, with his message that liberated not only the body, but liberated the soul mm -hmm. and the human spirit and the human heart, which of course is a factor which Marxists have long ignored. Mm -hmm. And by the way, there's a pretty good reason why. In Marxism, there's not a mention of individual rights. They didn't even have a word for rights. When I was over uh, in, in Russia, you know, this is about uh, 15 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, trying to do, you know, the equivalent of a course uh, in basically Catholic uh, and Christian social ethics, mm -hmm. as well as a course in our social doctrine. Uh, basically, as I was doing this course, the, the translator said, we have no word for rights wow. here. So he had to use about four words to describe rights every single time. So the translation, you know, I'd sit there. Uh, they didn't have the simultaneous translation at the time. So I'm sitting there waiting as they, you know, just for the word rights. But that's how, honestly, mm -hmm. you can see how deprived the idea of individual rights, the idea of individual liberties, the right. idea that the individual somehow has an intrinsic dignity that must be observed along with the, to the totality, the state, the government. And so, of course, you can see at, at the very same time that uh, what happened um, you know, is that uh, right. not only did they destroy their economies, but they destroyed the spirit, the heart of, of, of the people in, in these countries. Right. I mean, if you go around, you want to see a, a dejected nation? Hey, just take a good tour of Russia. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, I'm not kidding. You know, the, the, you know the, it's, there's just a sadness, mm -hmm. a palpable sadness uh, that you can feel. Something of hope has been taken away. Mm -hmm. And as you kind of walk around, you know, you say, well, it's the winter weather. Mm -hmm. Well, then go in the spring. Mm -hmm. I'll bet the same sadness is there, right. the same kind of a, an absence of hope. And you need Jesus so much. Uh, not only for the hope, but the reality, because he came to give the reality of the resurrection, not just hope in a fictitious resurrection, and he proved it by his own resurrection. And by the way, there's some pretty good scientifically validatable evidence right. from the shroud to that very fact. Absolutely. But that's a whole different story. Figured to get the shroud in there. Uh, to go on in, with Amen. this article, with liberation theology... Okay. Uh, Boff writes in his book, Faith is instrumentalized in terms of the poor. One falls into a utilitarianism or functionalism in relation to the Word of God and to theology in general, he said. According to the friar, and that's Boff, this is leading many Catholics to Protestantism, esotericism, esotericism, mm -hmm. uh, I'm still saying that wrong, neo-paganism, uh, it's being basically esoteric, and even Satanism. So, uh -huh. and on the end here, there's a quote yeah. 
uh, and this is from somebody who uh, we all respect. For him, it is necessary that the liberation theology be rethought with Christ at the center, not in the poor, in order to be timely, useful, and necessary, as St. John Paul II said in his letter to Brazilians in 1986. Of course we want to care for them. We have to, if we have Jesus at the center, then helping the poor becomes naturally, right? Yes, it becomes natural, and it also allows for uh, human rights. I mean, Jesus, after all, did observe individual rights. He didn't call it by that name, but if anyone uh, had dignified the individual more than Jesus prior to the time of Jesus, it's a mystery to me because uh, being, again, a student of history, I've never seen anything like it. Even Socrates couldn't approach the dignity that Jesus gave when he said, you know, whatever you do to the least of these little ones. He's talking about slaves here. We're talking about 40% of the world being slave servants. And he's saying, whatever you do to the least of these ones, you do to me. That's kind of taking a slave and elevating him to a divine level along with Jesus. You look at that. I mean, the individual is so utterly dignified. There is no male or female, no Gentile or Jew, etc. You know, you can feel it coming off the pages of Christian doctrine, the dignity of the individual. Prior to that time, the individual it was completely subordinated to the group, completely subordinated, whether it was a religious group, a, a cultural group, a state, a country group, whatever the group might be, the Roman army, uh, the Roman legion, whatever the case may be. Uh, you know, the fact is, uh, we, you know, you're mere cannon fodder. You're just a mere piece of straw compared to the great group, to the Roman Empire, whatever it may be. Now, the point that's really key here is Jesus takes the idea of the individual and elevates the individual to a status of equal importance to the collective, if not the most important, because it's constitutive of the collective. And then when he does that, he divinizes. He says, they share my dignity. Everybody does. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there is no slave or free, no Jew or Greek, and no um, woman or man. It's all you know, the same dignity, intrinsic, divine, transcendent dignity in me. And boy, what did that do? That liberated the whole idea of individuality for the West. It just all of a sudden, you know, it, it changed the world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I can go on in this theme forever and ever. But that dignity of right. the individual, that's what the Marxist forgot. The, the idea of productivity in the economy, the Marxist forgot. And the spirit, because of course, you know, Marxism is nothing more than dialectical materialism. So at the end, it's materialism. At the end of the day, there is no spirit and no spirit that needs to be contended with. Jesus was spirit par excellence, transcendence par excellence. You are made in the image of God. And he elevates that idea right to its form, uh, to its um, most, uh, its highest peaked level mm -hmm. uh, through the glory of the resurrection, which is to come. So right. my point is, wow, uh, you know, you, Marxism took all that away from Christianity. And when people got seduced by a social and economic model, all I can tell you is it was the it, it was so wrongo bongo. Right. I mean, the, the the idea at the time, you know, was even worse than trying to replace 
the idea of just human charity and human compassion and the virtues with a kind of Rogerian psych psychologism. I mean, it's, it was, the, the West made its own mistakes, but the Marxists made the greater mistakes. They killed the human spirit. They killed the human individual and the human individual rights. And of course, at the same time, killed the economy. What do you expect? Of course, Marxism is doomed to be a failure because it contains right. the seeds of its own destruction within itself. Right, and certainly Sorry, as it impacts uh, people's yeah. belief system and their faith. And I, I have to give, you know, I would say credit uh, to this particular boff because he has the humility yeah. to look and say, I was wrong. Mm -hmm things I was saying for years, yeah. which damaged lots of people. Because yeah. I think sometimes part of the problems we have in the church, there are people who supported positions that at the time, maybe they shouldn't have, they could have known better, but maybe they didn't. But by now you would think they absolutely do, but they refuse oh, yeah. to admit yeah. that they made that mistake or that there's anything wrong with what they did. Yeah, most of it is human pride, but mm -hmm. a lot of it still is belief in a false ideology that which ideology has been proven time and time and time again to be an utter failure uh, both on the human right. level on the spiritual level and on the individual level and on the economic level but you know for all intents and purposes you know what are you going to do if, if a person just stubbornly holds on to their thing as you know Einstein said there's the best definition of insanity is repeating the same mistake over and over and over again expecting a different result. Right, and we do it all the time. Here's some good news. Uh, mm -hmm. An article, Catholic school enrollment <laughs> way up in Florida, thanks to school choice, thanks to a program called Step Up, Florida's universal uh, school choice program. Archdiocesan schools are yeah. seeing enrollment increases and in even waiting lists for the 23-24 school year. Goes on to say, uh, throughout the yep. country is that the rule of thumb is and why Catholic schools are doing better is because throughout the country the impression is that children get a better education at half the cost in the Catholic schools if you can opt into them and one of the many reasons for that is better discipline inside the classroom. Yeah, well, I'd say that's one of the factors, definitely. Much better discipline inside the classroom. The second thing that's there is, there is, again, a sense of spirit. Mm -hmm. You know, that uh, you are a transcendent being. You're, you're not living for this life alone. That there is a life that is to come and that there is a hope that corresponds to it. And then, uh, uh, again, the idea of morality. It cannot be underestimated that an objective morality with objective principles is absolutely essential for human beings. If we do not have these principles, if we do not have these lines in the sand that we are not supposed to transgress, if we don't have them, we tend to let ourselves slide toward the bloody edge. And when we let ourselves slide to that edge, we oftentimes fall off. And boy, what a mess it is, not just for the individual, but for the collective as well, as we're experiencing in our world of identity politics today. So, I mean, this is, uh, this is the problem that we face. Uh, I mean, uh, if you want my view, I think if we do not correct this really quickly, mm -hmm. um, you know, and the Catholic schools may well be the, the solution, 
uh, I, I think we're really going to have problems in the future, but we need to create a generation of leaders, mm -hmm. uh, leaders that see more uh, than identity politics. They have a hope for something. They have a sense of human dignity where they see the mystery and transcendence and the unique goodness and lovability of each human being, where they actually try to have some objective moral principles, some lines in the, stand, the sand that they're not going to mm -hmm. transgress. And in addition to all of these things, they also have a, a, a real sense, too, of respect and dignity for these uh, teachers. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have that respect, goodbye, you know, Arriva Derci Roma. And so the, the idea um, behind the Catholic school is I think it's much more than discipline. Right. I think it's transcendent spirituality and hope. I think it is moral principles. I think it is respect for authority and respect for the teachers. And um, above all, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I treasure that word Jesus, uh, those words Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And the idea, you know, that Jesus stands at the center. He is the meaning of life. He is the incarnate Son of God. I believe this with all my passion. Right. I'd like to share that with everybody I can. Right. And so this is right. the point of Catholic education. Right. And, um, and, you know, and, my, that and, would be... Uh, right. And just yeah. like, like with liberation theology, if you move Jesus out of the center of whatever you're doing, including Catholic yep. education, that's when you run into these problems. Uh, and uh, yep. you wonder why right. it's not working the way it's supposed to work. Here's another... Uh, interesting article, kind of dovetails into a lot of uh, topics we've talked about over the last six months. Worcester uh, Bishop, Robert McManus has issued a countercultural policy, according to this article from Breitbart. Uh, it's not countercultural in our mind, but for Catholic schools in his diocese, banning cross-dressing and pronouns that conflict with a student's biological sex. The policy stipulates that all students will be treated according to their proper sex in participation in school athletics, dances, dress, uniform, etc., including locker rooms, bathrooms, as well as titles, pronouns, and in official school documents. The article goes on to say that students may not advocate, celebrate, or express same-sex attraction in such a way as to cause confusion or distraction in the context of Catholic school classes, activities, or events goes on to say, finally, we do not serve anyone's greater good by falsifying the truth. Amen. Yeah, uh, I think, that, by the way, that's not just countercultural, it's sanity. Right. And we know that it is sanity not only for the culture itself or the culture of the school in this particular case, we know that it is sanity for those individuals because where transgenderism has gone, there also has emotional health plummeted. Mm -hmm. Time and time and time again, I've gone through these statistics, but it also affects the whole culture of the school. You can't have this kind of confusion going on on such a fundamental level and think for a second mm -hmm. that this is not going to cross wires in somebody's, not just their mental, uh, you know, abstract capacities, but it's going to affect cross wires in their emotional lives. And they're going to be distracted by things which are really, they should not be distracted by. I mean, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, Ron DeSantis is absolutely right about these things. So mm -hmm. I, I uh, you know, and, and as he, you know, established them in Florida. So I, I think, you know, the, the, the emotional confusion causes the kind of cultural confusion. And confusion is never a good thing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in, in a grade school. It does cause kids to be emotionally distraught. Right. I mean, I certainly have an example in my own life. You know, um, you know one day my parents said, we're going to come and, uh, you know, um, we're going to see, um, you know, granddaddy 
uh, in the hospital. And I was about, I guess, three years old. And Granddaddy had really suffered a stroke. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, his face looked different. Mm-hmm. And so I remember I went in uh, to go see him uh, in the hospital room, ostensibly kind of to say goodbye because mm-hmm. I had been a very serious stroke. And I looked at him, and I was three years old, and I just started to cry. Mm-hmm. And mom said, well, why are you crying? And I said, well, that's not granddaddy. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we are so physical when we're young. Mm-hmm. We look at these young physical things, you know, and, and we associate that physical identity with the identity of the whole person. And I just, you know, um, like I said, you don't know any better, right? right. You, you don't have a sense of it. But if kids are really like that and you start messing with their physical identity, their physical sexual identity, I'm telling you, Doug, it's nothing but a big bundle of emotional confusion. And the emotional confusion is going to create all kinds of emotional right. turmoil, not just mental, abstract, categorical errors. Right, it's going to have emotional consequences, and it is having emotional consequences. The mental health and the emotional health, I should say, of our youngsters in, in primary school is declining all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, some, so much so that, you know, basically I look at this and go, Maybe homeschooling is the answer. I, you know, I'm just, you know, I mean, right. I'm, I'm, ne- I've never been against homeschooling. I love homeschooling, but, you know, but I'm just looking at this, going, would you really send your kids to a school that is going to promote this stuff? So I think right. the good bishop there is doing a right. good Absolutely. job, and I'm glad he's right. said it. And I think it is the recipe not only for religious truth and moral truth, but it's also the right. recipe for sanity individually and collectively. And we should pray for him, obviously, because I'm sure he'll be under lots of attacks. Yeah. And He's the weird gonna, thing is that it would be described as countercultural, something that 20 years ago people would have just said, well, of course, I mean, well, you're making a rule about this for, we all know, you know, locker rooms yeah. are this way or <laughs> people dress, uh, et cetera. Yeah. And what are these yeah. crazy pronouns that people are talking about? Anyway, let's get to some questions <laughs> yeah. people sent to sent to us as we're coming up on the break in about four minutes or so. Uh, Dear Father Spitzer, I recently read where after some genetic modifications to prevent rejection, a pig's kidney was transplanted into a human. At the time of the article, the man had survived 32 days and the kidney was functioning as hope. Given the lack of organs available for transplants, this seems to be like to be great news. But what does the church say about transplanting animal organs into people? George. Um, As far as I know, uh, there's nothing wrong with it, um, you know, obviously, uh, uh, basically at this juncture, you know, whether it comes from an animal or not, it's what's called functioning tissue, mm-hmm. and the functioning tissue uh, will, you know, with some um, genetic modifications, as you put it, and with mm-hmm. some uh, anti-rejection medications, uh, can function somewhat smoothly relative to um, uh, to uh, a human um, uh, a human organism uh, as a whole. So, I mean, um, I, the church, as far as I know, has, you know, nothing to say about it, only because right. it really is the tissue that people need. Uh, for a long time, of course, adult stem cells uh, have been recognized as another possible solution. And soon we will be able uh, to produce kidneys um, uh, through uh, basically a, a replication mm-hmm. of three-dimensional um, uh, printing 
uh, will be able to, to produce, use tissue, uh, in, as it were, in the printer, if I can put it that way, uh, to, um, uh, to produce uh, similar kinds of, of things from stem cells. So we're not there yet, but sooner or later we'll also be there as there's something wrong with it. If it's your adult stem cells, um, which you're not going to get rejection of them, uh, I don't see why uh, you wouldn't try to do that. You'd need some genetic modifications, of course. If, you, if your kidneys are giving out, you probably have a, a genetic uh, um, uh, challenge there that needs to be corrected. Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of cr gene correction is just fine by the Catholic Church. Then you reinsert the, uh, the gene into your own stem cells. It's a totipotent cell, so you're going to be able to uh, technically speaking, replicate it, and maybe we can replicate it into a kind of a kidney uh, eventually. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, challenges that still mm -hmm. need to be met, but that's another possibility on the horizon. I don't think the church will have anything against that. Of course, uh, we do not allow uh, use of embryonic stem cells mm -hmm. uh, because most of the time uh, that requires an aborted uh, fetus, and uh, we know that. Um, uh, you know, using aborted fetus tissue um, is another reason to promote abortions um, on the part of some uh, organizations who are promoting uh, abortions. And we know that they are feeding the, the fetal tissues and selling the fetal tissues and the fetal tissue lines mm -hmm. uh, to specific organizations who are, of course, trying to, um, you know, uh, use uh, stem cell treatments for other kinds of things. Why would you do that when the gold standard for stem cells mm. is adult stem cells anyway? They just take a little bit of uh, fat or something from underneath the arm, right? And uh, uh, you can, uh, you know, regress it back. You mm. can turn it back into its totipotent form, and then you can produce anything you want from it, mm -hmm. including, uh, you know, the cells that lead to a, a production of a kidney. Okay, very good. Right on point and right on time. We are going to be back with Father Spitzer as we take a short break. Part two, we'll have some more questions and then our topic. Stay with us. are here and so are you and it's great to have you stay with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe. You know what would really be great? If you could join us this Saturday for the EWTN Family Celebration, totally free, August 26th, right here in Birmingham, right near the network. Great speakers including Father Wade Manesis and Deacon Harold Burke-Sivers, Jim and Joy Pinto. We've got Mass with Bishop Stephen Reka and more information and how you can register uh, at EW10.com forward slash family celebration. And the registration's free. It's just so we can get an idea how many people may or may not show up. That would be great. And there'll be plenty of other uh, EWTN well-known hosts on our Spanish side, on our English side, who'll also be there, people signing uh, books as well. So something that we look forward to every year, and hopefully you will too. This year, we'll see you in Birmingham. And of course, we see Father Spitzer out there, and we've got some more questions from some of our Viewers, dear Father Spitzer, I'm an 82-year-old woman, and I'm facing surgery soon. I'm longing to join the Catholic Church. Both my husband and I, of 52 years, were previously married. My husband refuses to get an annulment from his previous marriage. I was told that if my husband did not also seek an annulment, I would not be able to enter the church. 
I don't think so. It is possible for me to join the church without my husband's cooperation. There is the possibility I could die during surgery, and I don't want to die outside the church. Diane. Diane, you can join the Catholic yeah, Church. The first thing to do is, um, uh, if you know a pastor, uh, maybe you're, you might uh, have a church in your local area there, a Catholic church in your local area, uh, just contact the pastor of that church. Uh, say exactly what you said um, on, on, in your question there to him, that you want mm -hmm. to join the Catholic Church, that your husband would not seek an annulment, but as far as you are concerned, your desire is to join the Catholic Church and to um, uh, seek peace uh, within the church as you face this surgery and um, even to go to the Sacrament of Reconciliation. So, <clears throat> you, you know, once you take your profession of faith, um, he will allow you to do the Sacrament of uh, Reconciliation. Mm -hmm. That's the one you really want to do. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, he can lead you through the other steps that, uh, that you need to do mm -hmm. um, uh, to try to maybe, uh, you know, within the relationship that you have, um, you know, to manifest um, your, uh, um, you know, your faith in Christ and how to live within the Catholic Church, uh, even though he will not uh, get the annulment. Uh, you can actually pursue uh, an annulment even though he may not cooperate mm -hmm. with it. So it's not necessary. Uh, you can actually prove um, the annulment case um, without your former husband's or your, your husband's, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, um, assent. So mm -hmm. contact that pastor, number one. Get uh, your professional faith. Say, get to the sacrament of reconciliation and seek your annulment without um, you know, the, uh, the right. uh, you can uh, pursue one without the husband's uh, cooperation. Right, absolutely. Another question, dear Father Spitzer, is speciesism or the belief that all other animal species are inferior to humans a Catholic dogma? I hope not. Dave. Well, actually, we do believe that human beings are superior uh, to all other uh, animal species, and the reason mm -hmm. we do is because, I mean, I don't think we would call it a dogma per mm -hmm. se, but right. we certainly believe that because we have transcendent souls, and, um, you know, animals do not have transcendent souls. And so you might say, well, what's your proof of that? Um, well, as I have said on other programs, uh, first of all, I think there's plenty of evidence that human beings have transcendent souls that even survive bodily death. Even this is published in the New York Academy of Sciences, uh, you know, in their um, uh, study of near-death experiences, etc. I can also, we can also see that in the uh, area of terminal lucidity, etc. But I think two major signs of the soul of human beings are there. The first are uh, what I've called the Nimchimsky tests. So Nimchimsky, right, this is a very highly uh, trained chimpanzee. And to make a very long story short, Nim can learn almost 150 words in American Sign Language. So he, but they're all perceptual ideas. Mm -hmm. So like you see the image of a banana and then you correlate that with the sign, the American Sign Language of a banana. And then the same thing you can do, you can train another sign and another sign. And of course, Nim can actually uh, imitate, mimic these signs. They're all perceptual ideas. But 95, no, 96% of the words we use 
are not perceptual ideas, they're conceptual ideas. They're abstract ideas. They don't have a correlate in the world of sensorial experience. So there's no banana, there's no tree, there's no rock. Listen to the words I'm using. There is no, and the only one is rock that has a, uh, you know, a, a sensorial image to correspond to it. And then listen to what I just said. There is no, the rock is the only word that does not have a sensorial image to correspond to it. Every one of those words except rock, every one of them was a conceptual idea, an abstracted idea with no sensorial correlate. Nim doesn't get it. Nim can't get it. And because Nim doesn't have that, Nim can't say anything about anything. Mm-hmm. Nim can't form a predicate. Nim can't form a direct object. Nim can't even tell the difference between man bites dog and dog bites man. Man bites dog, that makes a little girl laugh. D- dog bites man, that's normal. Uh, Chip Nim doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get the syntax uh, thing. So the, the point that I'm trying to, to get to here is that's a sign of a soul. And the reason I'm saying that is because abstract intelligence, and I have a very good right. proof of this in my new book coming out, Science at the Doorstep of God. Uh, you can buy this in Ignatius Press in September. Uh, you'll be able to see it, Science at the Doorstep to God. Right. Just go to chapter five. Chapter four has all the near-death experience stuff. Chapter five has the, um, uh, the proof of the soul from uh, abstract intelligence. There's a second thing that human beings have that's also quite mysterious, and that's called self-consciousness. Right. And self-consciousness in human beings give, give what is called autonoetic. Um, uh, we can move our consciousness around. So uh, we can move our, our consciousness back into the past. We can move our consciousness into the future to anticipate future scenarios. We, our consciousness, we actually are aware of our awareness, and that, again, transcends physical processes. There's a proof of that in that same mm-hmm. book, Science at the Doorstep right. to God, Chapter 5. But the main thing to see in this idea of self-consciousness and autonoetic, right, so we can move it back and forth in the future and the past. That self-consciousness unifies. It's present in every single sensorial datum that we observe. And what self-consciousness does is it unifies this disparate uh, sensory datum, this disparate sensory datum, this disparate sensory datum. It puts it all together into my sensory datum. My self-consciousness is embedded in every Mm -hmm. one of those things, unifying all of those disparate sensory data into a single narrative unity. And that, that is, you know, the human gift. We're storytellers. And we're not only storytellers, we're anticipators. That's why we're the only species that buries their dead with grave goods that'll be useful for their future eternal life. life, Other species, not even Neanderthals. Yeah, right. right. Absolutely. And also, I mean, Mm -hmm. even even simply, I mean, uh, if you read scripture and you believe in scripture, it, it seems to be that man was created in such a way oh, yeah. above the animals and ultimately yeah. had a responsibility to take care of them. I don't read anything where they, they asked the horse to take care of people uh, or any other thing in the scriptures where <laughs> there, there's an explanation, you know, an expectation that the animal's supposed to look out for us or something. Well, at the, at the end of the whole of creation, right. then God decides to make human beings in his own image and likeness. In his own image right. and likeness, he created right. human beings not the other animals. Right, and that's, you know, again, from Revelation, we see it. 
We also see it absolutely in the philosophical data. We also see it mm -hmm. in terminal lucidity and near-death experiences. We also see it in the abstract intelligence and in the, what we call triadic mm -hmm. syntactical intelligence and of, of uh, ling uh, linguistic systems in human beings. All these things that cannot be replicated by animals whatsoever, right. and they are not even replicated in our ancestors, our previous, um, you know, um, uh, hominid ancestors. So uh, Neanderthals didn't do it, and, and Homo erectus didn't do it, and Homo uh, habilis. There's right. no signs I, at I, all. I think sometimes, uh, I think okay. sometimes with these people too, their concern is that somehow because we see ourselves as above, th that we don't treat them the way they should be treated, which is not true at all. That's not what's supposed to happen, how we treat nature and how we treat the animal kingdom, right? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, because animals are not the same as, as human beings, that doesn't mean you can treat them in right. a horrible you know, Absolutely. way or cause intentional pain and things to them. But at the same time, right. uh, you, you certainly don't uh, have to, uh, uh, you know, try and preserve their lives. You know, if an animal is sick, sometimes mm -hmm. you say, well, gosh, you know, the vet wants a, a $25,000 operation. Um, you know, maybe it's time to let go of the little doggy. Right. You know, I mean, um, and uh, let nature take its course. The dog doesn't have any self-reflective awareness of his death and go into a depression. Mm -hmm. The dog generally goes to a place by um, itself and, and uh, just uh, goes into a corner and peacefully passes away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether those dogs, uh, you know, Paul certainly thinks that there's a redemption of, of uh, the whole of creation, uh, and maybe that is the case. Mm -hmm. we, we certainly haven't uh, made it dogma, but right. maybe all of these things do happen. But the point is, yeah, you're, you're not going to treat human right. beings and say, human beings have the individual right to liberty. Well, well in order to have liberty, you have to have self-consciousness and a conscience. Mm -hmm. I mean, hey, wait a minute here. If you don't have self-consciousness, one, one of the provable things that animals do not have, uh, how in the world right. are you, you know, they don't have autonoetic consciousness, you know, and, and so Nim Chimsky's out of luck. Right. The, the, the main thing is, how, how can you give the animal a right to liberty uh, or, you know, a, a right to property mm -hmm. um, or, you know, a right to pursue happiness uh, or, you know, uh, the, 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 you'd have to have liberty to, to pursue right. happiness. You'd have to have, you know, a forward directed consciousness, right. which is, you know, can anticipate the future, right. etc. Well, if an animal doesn't have that, what are we talking right. about here? Well, so, of course, uh, we call that a category error. Right. The, well, the, up, uh, the upside of that is that Nimchinsky is not asking for his pronouns to be changed, so we don't have to worry about that. So, with that being the case, we're going to go look at the book and get a couple of comments in, <laughs> right. in the closing 13 minutes or so. You talk about in the, on page 24 about, you know, social norming and cultural mainstreaming of right. ideas. You say, we have compromised and even numbed our consciences and have allowed our desire for autonomous freedom to eclipse our adherence to objective moral norms. And, uh, and the result yeah. of that, as noted mm -hmm. in the book, has been a steady decline in so many things, religious commitment, but also in emotional health, family stability, and social harmony. If it's so obvious that that's what's going on, why do we continue to do it? Because we lust after that autonomous authority, mm -hmm. and we don't want to give up the results of the sexual revolution. There's just enough people out there 
and you know, pr and, you know, I don't have to tell you the pornography and sex industries. I mean, uh, all, they're just going full blast. The mm -hmm. autonomy uh, revolution is going full blast. I mean, what do you think Instagram's based on? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just I'm better than you are, right. and here I can show you that I'm hanging around better company than you are. And here's a party I went to that you didn't get to go to. And you know, don't you envy me? You know, I mean, I mean, it's like we're vanity squared right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, so so we're we're, we're basically at a, at a point where we have trivialized our existence by our desire for autonomous freedom, our desire uh, for, you know, uh, sexual, um, you know, license in, in every imaginable way, which we think absolutely is a right. And, uh, and in addition to all of these things, you have to reject mm -hmm. objective moral norms in order to get that. Because Jesus says, really, if I might translate and paraphrase him, it's not good to be a narcissist. It's not good to have, uh, you know, complete promiscuity 24-7. It's not good. Mm -hmm. So if, I, if, I, if that's what Jesus is saying, and, and, uh, it, then there must be a reason that, that he would be saying that. And that is, it's going to, first of all, dehumanize you. It's going to make you put your mere pleasure and your mere autonomy and your selfish, egotistical desires ahead of the good of others, ahead of the good of the kingdom of God, ahead of the good of the culture, right? I mean, in other words, you can't think of anything beyond yourself, basically, and, and the, the, the self begins to, to rule everything, which is the exact opposite of what God intended us to be. He intended us to be noble creatures, to be you know, people that are, would invest ourselves in, in, in the good of others, the good of the economy. And, and so at the end of the day, if that's what God's intention is for us, you can just, it, it's like emotional suicide if we go, you know, the culture's route. Go ahead, sexualize, go ahead, autonomous freedom, elevated to the, to the realm of, you know, transcendent norms. Uh, you can do it because you are yourself and you are you, 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 you. Yeah, and so the, the point is pretty clear. Mm -hmm. Once you've got that out and going, you got to destroy objective moral norms. Objective moral norms are going to get away in the way of your freedom, going to get in the way of sexual, uh, sexual, complete sexual expression. So if you got to get rid of them. You get rid of those objective, um, you know, moral norms. And what do you have left? You have social norming. Mm -hmm. And that's where we are today. People say, hey, am I in the mainstream or am I not in the mainstream? Well, let me see now. What are the statistics? Are most people having an affair? Well, 50% of people or whatever. I don't, you know, I don't know right. what the it's, Well, it's, it's what the impression, even, but, even if it's not the reality, it's yeah. what the media yeah. gives you the impression is it going tries on. To, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And because I just want to normal, I just want to be right there in the middle, mm -hmm. right? I just want to be doing whatever what the group is doing because I don't have any objective moral principles. I'm not, um, you know, ob obedient to a, a God, a transcendent being beyond myself. Uh, all I've got is the social norms, so I, I don't want to be too far, you know, on the promiscuous side. I don't want to be, you know, uh, not taking advantage of everything I could take advantage of. So I may as well just kind of hang tough in the middle there, and let's see where everybody is. Well, here's the problem. Mm -hmm. You can see it's called the creep upwards, right? Mm -hmm. So, or the creep downwards, I should say, because what, what begins to happen is people go, well, okay, um, you know, um, most people are having an affair, let's say, once a year. Okay, 
well, I can, you know, right now I'm only at uh, once every three years. I, I may as well go up to once a year, get in there with the mainstream. But look at what happens. That elevates where the mainstream is. Mm -hmm. And so everybody else starts rising to meet the standard. Mm -hmm. But then the vanguard is going ahead of that. And so it's raising the average. And so as it kind of raises the average, well, I guess, you know, maybe... You know, now everybody's having an affair uh, four times a year. I may as well go up there if that's what everybody else is doing. Now, of course, I'm being utterly sarcastic right. here, but the, the point that I'm trying to, to make is if you do this continuously, moral, I mean, we're basically going to lapse into hedonism. There's nothing to prevent us. In fact, the momentum of moral norming is always to up, you know, to move us you know, away from the standard and into the more, as it were, radical uh, conduct. And so um, for all intents and purposes, right. uh, you can see this, by the way, because the, the norms, uh, the moral norms of the population, mm -hmm. uh, especially with respect to, uh, um, you know, the, the old Ten Commandments, do not lie, do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't harm others intentionally. I mean, it's going, I mean, the homicide rate among young people is even up 24%. So that, and that's pretty radical stuff, you know, the thou shalt not kill. But that, it's pretty clear we're, we're having real problems here. And right. we're definitely, what, our report card's not looking so right. good. Yeah, what, what, what we value is yeah. uh, really a question. You yeah. talk about the idea that objective moral norms are necessary to prevent moral, emotional, filial, uh, familial, societal, and spiritual decline. You go on to talk about... Uh, the idea that we will discuss three major sources of objective moral norms. This is on page 25 at the top. Religion, uh -huh. conscience, yeah. and commonly held beliefs within mm -hmm. the culture. You go on to say, religion mm -hmm. is the most powerful source. Conscience is second to religion and can act independently of it. And you say religion plays a large role in forming moral norms beyond conscience's six general interior principles. I always thought conscience is supreme. How, do, how does religion outright conscience? Well, because, you know, first of all, if you feel like you, uh, you know, there's a huge study called the Probatia study, um, you know, uh, that, uh, that takes a look at, you know, is it really true that religious people, when faced with a tough ethical situation, that they'll actually do the right thing, like not steal or whatever it is, you know, in a business situation, let's say, you know, will they do the right thing because of their um, religion? in the moment of the decision. So it's not like, um, you know, you could say, well, an atheist does believe in, uh, you know, do not steal and don't lie and don't cheat. Very often they do, um, you know, but it's who's going to do it, who's going to carry it out in the actual situation. As it turns out in the Probatia study, it's the, the religious people, mm -hmm. the ones who have the strong religious conviction that they're responsible to a moral agency outside of themselves, that group of people definitely does do the right thing more often in the, in the ethical situation. So it's not what your abstract beliefs are in morality. Because you can say, you know, well, atheists and, and Christians are almost indistinguishable, and certainly the six uh, big norms of don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, you know, you don't have a lot of people out there heralding cheating, lying, and stealing. Mm -hmm. Satanists, maybe, but anybody else, not so. Mm -hmm. So the idea then would be, well, then what is the difference? Mm -hmm. Are you going to do it? And that, 
you know, religion, as I would say, makes all the difference. Okay. That's where you really get the uh, the, um, uh, the differential. Right. Well, and you go on to say about the idea that in our society, conscience has been explained away. You talk about being numb, but explained away. What do you mean? Well, I mean, basically, I go back, I shouldn't be uh, continually using Rogerian psychology as the whipping mm -hmm. boy. But let's face facts, you know, if everything is feelings, you know, then uh, the first thing is, is, oh, uh, I'm, Doc, I'm feeling guilty, oh, uh, you know, to the psychiatrist. Well, why, why are you feeling guilt? Well, you know, I murdered Johnny. You know, well, uh, how do you feel about that? Well, right now I feel pretty bad about it. Well, I don't want you to feel so bad. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, I'm using a sarcastic mm -hmm. example. But, I mean, the point, I'm, tr I'm not making fun of psychology or something. But what I'm trying to say is, if you go to the level of what Philip Reef called the triumph of the therapeutic, mm -hmm. what winds up happening is you say, really, you should not be feeling guilt. That's where the Rogerian point it, you know, where you, the rubber hits the road. Mm -hmm. A Christian can never say that. Mm -hmm. You know, well, maybe you should be feeling guilty if you right. murdered right. Johnny. Right. Or maybe you should you be feeling guilt if you've been stealing. You have a problem, yeah. don't you? I mean, you're a sociopath it, or a yeah. psychopath, right? <laughs> exactly. And the idea of talking people out of guilt. Now, I can see that you talk a person out of what might be called a kind of a cosmic guilt, mm -hmm. right? A Franz Kafka kind of the trial mm -hmm. kind right. of guilt, uh, where it's you know, amorphous and I, I don't exactly know what I did, what am I guilty of. But you, even still in Kafka's book, The Trial, there are reasons why Joseph K. is feeling guilty. I mean, he's a rat, to, well, in a way, to mm -hmm. all the girlfriends he takes advantage of and all the business things that he does. You know, he's not an innocent guy. Mm -hmm. There's some good reason for feeling guilty. But the, the operative notion for Kafka is he feels this guilt, and for some reason he's not tying it in to his past actions. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there are many people who say, you know, um, uh, you know of him. Well, he's you know uh, uh, you know a person who who uh, uh, you know feels guilt unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what Kafka's saying, but I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I think Kafka's saying is he's not tying it into his past, and because of that, he thinks he's dying like a dog at the end of the book. But in point of fact, Yosef uh, K is dying like a dog because he refuses to admit responsibility for the terrible things he's done to people in the past. He won't admit it. And since he doesn't have God, he doesn't have any source of reconciliation, like our sacrament of reconciliation or mm -hmm. some source of forgiveness like Jesus Christ. He's got nothing like that. He, mm -hmm. he, he really doesn't have a God. And so he can't admit the responsibility. Uh, all that, that is left of him is to get punished. And indeed, at the end, uh, you know, Dostoevsky's crime and punishment and Yosef K, mm -hmm. uh, right? They're very similar in a way. I mean, they both kind of die like a, a dog. Um, you know, uh, somebody, the punisher comes mm -hmm. and takes, you know, and does what needs to be done uh, to bring about justice and assuage conscience at the time that justice is done. In the case of uh, crime and punishment, right? Um, you know, the, the, you know the protagonist seeks, uh, winds up seeking the punishment. Right. Uh, you know that uh, that he gets. 
because uh, you can, you know, the telltale heart, right. you know, ripping the floorboards apart. You know, you basically at the end of the telltale heart, the thumping, the thumping, the, right. the beating of the heart is, right. is so intense he can't live with himself right. anymore, and he basically admits to his own right. guilt, but or you know leads the path the police to so, uh, discover his own so guilt. We got the Edgar Allan Poe there, but we're just about out of time. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, quote the <laughs> okay. Raven, out of time. Okay, so if you'd like to give us a uh, your Blessing on the way out the door, oh, yeah. Father, that would be great. Absolutely. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the good Lord of wisdom, the good Lord of conscience, the good Lord of objective moral norms, the good Lord of love, the good Lord of reconciliation, the good Lord of Jesus Christ who gave himself totally to humankind for our salvation, bless you, guide you, protect you, and inspire you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father, for another powerful episode. We shall see you next week. And remember, Father's books and DVDs are always available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. And next week, we'll continue with the moral wisdom of the Catholic Church. Much more ahead. Bookmark this weekend, All One in Christ, a Catholic critique of racism and critical race theory. Interesting with Professor Edward Fazer. It's definitely worth a look. Check that out. Also, the Order of Malta has a pilgrimage mass from Ireland's International Eucharistic and Marian Shrine in Knock, and that's Sunday at noon Eastern. Look for that as well. Don't forget about our family celebration coming up as well. And this has been Father Spitzer's Universe, where we shall see you next week. Thanks.